Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Happy Pesach, happy Passover, Shabbat Shalom. We are going to go ahead and put the slide up. Today, because we're in the midst of the spring festivals of God's appointed times, including Pesach, uh, in which Yeshua uh, died as the Lamb of God, and then the Feast of Matzah, unleavened bread, the day in which he was buried, is our sinless sacrifice, uh, being without leaven, and uh, first fruits, the day of the resurrection, with Yeshua being the first fruit of those who are raised from the dead. Uh, Yeshua faithfully keeps all of God's moedim, all of his appointed times. And so today, since uh, t- tonight at sundown begins the biblical Feast of First Fruits, with Yeshua being raised sometime between tonight and tomorrow morning, uh, I want to talk today about the resurrection, the first fruits. So turn with me, if you can, to uh, Yochanan, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 20, John 20, beginning in verse 19. John 20, 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, which begins at sundown tonight, uh, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Yeshua came and stood among them and said, Shalom Eilechem, peace be unto you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Yeshua said, peace, shalom, peace be unto you. As the Father has sent me, as Earl talked about earlier, I'm now sending you. Uh, and with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, uh, they're not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin, one of the twelve, he wasn't with the disciples when Yeshua came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and this time Thomas was with them. When the doors were locked, Yeshua came and stood among them and said, Peace be unto you. Peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out with your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Yeshua told him, Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Yeshua performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. Now Thomas, he's the most famous doubter of the resurrection. And it's helpful for us to look at his experience, uh, because many of us today, uh, in our postmodern, secular, scientific, skeptical age, say that it's impossible to believe in the resurrection. So, is it possible today to believe in the resurrection? Now, most of you here today are believers uh, and do believe in the resurrection. Uh, But interestingly, I heard a Messianic rabbi just earlier this year confess 
to his, to his congregation, he says, he said, I thought I believed in the resurrection also. And then I was diagnosed with liver cancer. And although, uh, he says, I was, I'm a strong Yeshua follower, I came to see that my faith in Yeshua was not as consoling uh, and as empowering and as life-transforming as it should have been. Uh, and he repented from that. Uh, and when the rubber meets the road, that's when our faith is tested. So when we look at Thomas, and we see him coming uh, from skepticism to faith, uh, this helps all of us. Because everyone either doesn't believe in the resurrection at all, or you say you do, but you really don't believe in it as nearly as you think you do and as you say you do, and as firmly and as robustly and as, and as a life-transforming type of a way uh, as you should. So I want to look at this famous account today of Thomas and ask just two questions from the overhead. Number one, why didn't Thomas believe? Uh, why was he doubtful? And number two, how did he come to believe? So first, why didn't he believe? Why was he so skeptical? You know, because we have, have these same struggles today. So one possibility is that Thomas was skeptical because of his temperament. Uh, of course, back then, they didn't have the Myers-Briggs personality inventory test. Uh, uh, but if they did have it back then, he would have been classified as a, quote, sensing type person, uh, rather than an intuitive type person. Uh, you know, what this test says is that a sensing personality, a sensing person, they pay more attention to physical reality, uh, to facts, to, to hard, cold evidence. Whereas an intuitive person, they go out more on perceptions and, and intuition and instincts. And therefore, it's harder for a sensing person to believe unless you give them hard, cold evidence. So if you're a sensing person rather than an intuitive person, you can look at Thomas and you can say, yeah, that's me. So maybe he represents your personality type. Another possibility is that Thomas was just generally skeptical of the supernatural. He doubted anything claiming to be supernatural. Uh, he might have said, I've seen plenty of dead people, and they don't rise back to life. Corpses don't rise from the dead. Miracles can't happen. Indeed, modern people have a worldview that says miracles don't happen. Dead people don't rise. There's no such thing as a supernatural. Uh, and so in this sense, Thomas represents uh, the modern Western man or woman. And there's a third, a third possibility why he, might not, why he may have doubted, which has nothing to do with rationally trying to explain what happened to Yeshua. Uh, and I've been around dying people before, and for, I've seen their family and their friends go through agony because they had this hope, and they hope the person is going to recover, and then their hopes are dashed. And, and through great agony, they come to the conclusion that their friend or their family member is going to die. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, let's fly them over here to this other country where there's this new experimental treatment that could possibly save their life. And often, believe it or not, I've heard friends and family say, uh, they say don't say, will not say that's great. Rather, they say, no, don't get my hopes up again. I can't bear it. On one level, I don't even want to know about this other possible treatment because I don't want to get my hopes up again only to have them dashed once more and having to go through all the pain and the agony and the disappointment and the mourning all over again. I can't bear to lose them all over again. 
And perhaps something like that happened with Thomas. You know, Thomas gets a bad rap in history because we've even coined a phrase, right, for skeptical, unsure people. What do we call them? You are doubting Thomas. <laughs> Don't be a doubting Thomas. But there's no indication in the Bible that he didn't love Yeshua as much as all the other disciples. In fact, if you read John chapter 11, he's the one who says, I'm willing to die for Yeshua. So there's no reason to believe he wasn't as much devastated at Yeshua's death as any other disciple. And then they come along and they say, guess what? He's alive. And Thomas says, don't get my hopes up. I can't possibly begin to hope in this again Unless I actually see a living person with gaping, lethal wounds in their body, only then will I know it's not some imposter. So there's a certain sense in which maybe it's his emotions. Maybe he's afraid to hope. And there's all the same reasons why we have today, have trouble today believing in the resurrection. All these same three reasons. Uh, You might have a worldview that says, no, this can't happen. But worldviews can be wrong, you know. You might have a temperament that says, I need more evidence. Or you might have a heart that simply says, I'm afraid of being drawn into something that might disappoint me. So it might not be as much a matter of the head as a matter of the heart uh, for you. But for, for all these reasons, whoever you are, whatever your reasons happen to be, you can see yourself in Thomas. But then you've got to also see that Thomas, this great doubter, in the end says to Yeshua, my Lord and my God. So here he is, the biggest doubter of the whole group, and yet his confession of faith is the greatest confession of all. He doesn't just say, wow, Yeshua, you really are alive again. But he says to him, Yeshua, you are my Lord and you are my God. You know, for a Jewish man to say that to a human being, uh, that's phenomenal. There is no higher confession of faith in all the Bible. Here's a guy who goes from 0 to 60 in, in two seconds flat. The biggest doubter becomes the greatest believer. So there is hope today for you, no matter who you are. There's hope for you. There's hope for all of us. So the next question is, how? How did he come to believe? And by observing both what he did and what he didn't do, we can see five ways, we'll look at five ways today, that you also can move from doubt uh, to belief. Uh, From dubiousness and doubt towards faith in the resurrection of Yeshua with the Messiah. Five ways. So these are the five ways. Number one, you've got to listen to the eyewitnesses. Number two, you've got to see that he is seeking you. Number three, you've got to understand the meaning of glorified wounds. Number four, you have to repent. And number five, you've got to drop your conditions. Okay, number one, you've got to listen to the eyewitnesses. Uh, In John chapter 20, uh, John tells us that Yeshua, the risen Messiah, he appeared to the disciples in the upper room, but Thomas was not there. And then a week later, Yeshua shows up again, and this time Thomas is there. And during this week, the disciples kept telling him, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord. In fact, if you look very carefully, the Greek verb is in the present progressive tense, meaning they kept telling Thomas over and over again, we've seen him, we've seen him. Uh, And during this week, Thomas Thomas kept saying, I don't care what you say. Look at John 20, verse 25. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my fingers where those nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So these eyewitnesses, they're talking to Thomas, and in one sense, during this week, Thomas is in the same spot that you and I are in. 
Because he had access to what you and I also have access to. Eyewitness accounts of people who actually saw Yeshua after he was raised from the dead. All these other disciples, they said, we saw him. Now, Thomas's eyewitness accounts were from people who, who were still alive. We're talking to Thomas in person. Yet you and I have the same eyewitness accounts. They're simply now written down uh, and preserved for us in the New Covenant Scriptures. The New Testament, especially the Gospels, are eyewitness accounts of Yeshua, written by the apostles and by their associates. You know, critics used to claim, just 20, 30, 40 years ago, that the New Testament accounts were just legends written down long after, hundreds of years after the events in question, and therefore they're not trustworthy in any way. But in the last 40 years of scholarship, there's been tremendous advances that have completely, completely debunked uh, these claims of, of late authorship of the Gospels. All the more recent scholarship demonstrates the Gospels do not have uh, the, the marks uh, of, of fiction. Uh, rather, they have the marks of oral history, uh, of eyewitness testimony, of firsthand reportage. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because we've talked about this at length uh, before. But the fact is, in the ancient times, when you wrote history, when you wrote historical documents, the way to vouch for its authenticity is that you would name the eyewitnesses who had seen the things you're talking about. And these eyewitnesses were still alive. So you could go to them and check it out. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's writing only 15 to 20 years after the resurrection. That's all. And he says that the risen Yeshua appeared to 500 people all at once. And then he goes on to say, almost all of them are still alive. These eyewitnesses are still alive, meaning if you have doubts, go talk to them. Check it out. Now think about this. Paul could not possibly have written this. You know, I'm not talking about hundreds of years later when all the, all the witnesses are dead, but only 15 to 20 years after the resurrection, when almost all the eyewitnesses are still alive and he can verify it, he could not possibly have written that down and gotten away with it Unless it was true. So the New Testament is filled with eyewitness accounts of the life, the miracles, the death, and the resurrection of Yeshua. And uh, this should be all we need. For Yeshua says, John 20, verse 29, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now if Yeshua says to Thomas, you should have believed the eyewitnesses, uh, you shouldn't need to see me, uh, then why did he actually appear to Thomas? Well, well, Thomas was an apostle. He was one of the twelve. Uh, these first apostles who were sent out to be the original teachers and evangelists to the world. Uh, and one of the marks of an apostle is that they were not only Yeshua's disciples, but they also the ones who saw him risen. So in one sense, what Yeshua is doing here is he's qualifying Thomas to be an apostle. And then in verse 29 he says, you really don't need, to believe in, uh, you really don't need that to believe in me, though. Why not? Well, let me ask you a question. How many of the things you believe have happened in history have you actually seen? Huh? I'm waiting. <laughs> not very many, right? <laughs> and yet you still believe they all happened, right? Why? Because you believe eyewitness testimony that was later written down. And since you already believe in all kinds of things in history, that you never actually saw, there's no reason not to believe in the resurrection, which is one of the best attested occurrences of all historical events. 
Uh, in fact, it's attested to in all four Gospels, uh, in Paul's letters. It's attested to uh, in, by the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, by Roman historians. In fact, they recently discovered this in the last few years, uh, a brand new, in Israel, a brand new first century decree written on stone of the Emperor Claudius. Uh, that was a, a decree against grave robbers and disturbers of sepulchers. <coughs> Indirectly attesting to their resurrection in the empty tomb. Why would the Roman emperor, thousands of miles away, have needed to erect this, this decree in Israel in the first century if he had not heard of the rumors of the resurrection? And even the Talmud itself unintentionally attests to this because in the Talmud it denounces a certain first century heretic, their words, who rose from the dead by the power of God. Wow. <laughs> so Yeshua says there's no reason not to believe in my resurrection, whether you physically have seen me or not. Uh, indeed, he says, John twenty twenty nine again, blessed are those uh, who've not seen and yet have believed. So if you want to fairly evaluate the resurrection of Yeshua, upon which all of our messianic faith either rises or falls, the first thing you need to do is start reading the Gospels and evaluate them as historical first-century eyewitness accounts and see how well they stand up and see how persuasive they are. So number one, listen to the eyewitnesses. Uh, number two, you've got to see you're not just trying to find him, but he's already reaching out trying to find you. I can't tell you how many people have real, uh, that I know who have realized that, who, who, who later become Yeshua followers, who realize at a certain point, I was searching and searching for truth. Yes, I was searching for God, but then it hit me. I wouldn't even be seeking unless he was pursuing me. I know that's very true in my own life. And we see here that Thomas, uh, who was there with the other disciples um, a, a week ago, uh, um, and, and uh, he was not there a week ago, and he missed Yeshua. Now he is here a week later, and during this prior week, he kept saying, I won't believe, I won't believe, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and put my fingers in his side. Now a week later, Yeshua appears to him, and what does Yeshua say? Thomas, put your hands in my side. Now if you're Thomas, what are you thinking? How did you know I said that? <laughs> Where did you hear that, Yeshua? <laughs> And Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. Why? Well, one obvious reason, he sees the risen Yeshua in flesh and blood. Uh, but another reason is because he realizes Yeshua was listening all along. He was there all along, whether Thomas saw him or not. You know, one of C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia Chronicles, uh, the, the, uh, the Horse and His Boy, there's this little boy, Shasta, who's in this far-off country, and he hears about um, Aslan. He hears about Narnia, uh, where Aslan, the Lion King, lives. And he tries to escape his country to get to Narnia. And the whole time, everything seems to be going wrong for him. He says, I'm trying to get to Narnia, I'm trying to get to Narnia, I'm trying to get to Aslan, the king, but everything goes wrong. And then one day, in this fog, uh, a voice speaks to him. And it's Aslan. Although he didn't know, he doesn't know who it is at first. Uh, and Shasta keeps telling Aslan about his whole escapade, about how he's trying to escape, and how hard it's been. And we put this in the overhead. And then Shasta hears the voice say this. And then Shasta says to the voice, he, Shasta says to this voice, "Don't you think it's bad luck that I kept running into all these lions?" <laughs> 
And the voice says, oh, there was only one lion. What do you mean? I was the lion. And as Shasta gasped, uh, the voice continues, I was the lion who forced you to drown with Erebus. I was the cat who, who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the, the new strength of fear for that last mile so they could reach uh, King Loon in time. And I was the lion who you don't remember at all, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to the shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. C.S. Lewis here is remembering his own journey from faith uh, to faith, uh, from being an atheist, when he realized at a certain point uh, that he wasn't just trying to find God as much as God was trying to find him, and how God was always there. In other words, he would not have been seeking God unless God was first seeking him. You know, in the same way, you can look back uh, on your own life. I know that I can. Uh, and see all the ways in which your life twisted and turned, and you realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, he's after me. He hears, he listens. And that's the second thing that Thomas had, and, and that, that we also need to, to realize as well. Uh, and this can begin to melt your heart. And so number one, listen to the eyewitnesses. Number two, realize he is after you. Number three, Understand the meaning of what I'm going to call glorified wounds. What do I mean by that? Notice uh, that this whole passage, you know, is all about Thomas saying, I want to touch his wounds. I want to put my, put my hands inside his wounds. And then Yeshua shows up and says, okay, touch. Now, does Thomas actually touch? No. There's no indication in the text that he never does. He just cries out, my Lord and my God. Well, why doesn't he go ahead and, and touch Yeshua's wounds? Well, well, for one thing, Thomas thought the wounds were the main evidence that Yeshua was alive again. Uh, if I see and touch him, uh, those wounds, I know he's alive. When he actually sees them, you know, uh, they're evidence also of something else, something far more powerful. Now, why would a, a resurrected body still have the wounds in it? This is supposed to be a perfect, glorified body no longer subject to death or decay. So why are the wounds still there? This principle is profound. And this principle is found in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, uh, where Paul says this, For our light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, now, Paul's not just saying that our suffering here, you know, that at the end, God's, at the end of time, God's going to come down uh, and give us a glory to console us for all the suffering that we, we had. Uh, and, and if that's what Paul was saying, that would, that would be great enough. But he doesn't say that. He says that our sufferings are actually producing or preparing the glory. Now, what in the world does that mean? I think it works on at least three different levels. First, as, as many of you know, it's the biggest wounds in your life that, that have driven you to God. The scriptures say if you really trust with all your heart and all your soul in the resurrection of Yeshua, that you will be raised with him. So you don't need to be, be afraid of anything else ever again at all. If you really trust in the resurrection, 
This enables you to overcome all uh, fears and tribulations and trials and sufferings and sorrow in this world. There's nothing this world can, can do to you that won't be overcome in the resurrection. So hope in the resurrection is an endless source of astounding joy. And if it takes something bad in your life to drive you to faith and to hope, that bad thing is a wound. Yes, it really is a wound. But nonetheless, your life is now inexpressibly richer. It becomes a glorified wound. Our wounds are preparing the coming glory. But there's a second sense in which this is true as well. When Yeshua says to Thomas, look at my wounds, Thomas, of course, has seen these wounds before, uh, on the cross, all the disciples saw them, actually saw them inflicted. They saw the spear go into his side. They saw the nails driven into his hands. Uh, and, 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 uh, and when they saw this, they thought that these wounds meant the destruction of all their hopes. These wounds were, were, were devastating. Uh, these wounds were ruining their lives, they thought, as well as, of course, ruining Yeshua's life. But now Yeshua comes back and he says, Guess what, Thomas? The things you thought were ruining your life have actually saved your life. It's my wounds. Dying on the cross. Paying the penalty for your sins. So that all your sins can be forgiven. So the Holy Spirit can now come into your life. So you can be saved. The things you thought were ruining your life actually have saved your life. And then there's a third level. The third level is this. When Paul says our our sufferings are preparing an eternal weight of glory, it means uh, that the worst, the most terrible things that have happened to you, if you believe in Yeshua and rest in him, every terrible thing that's ever happened to you will only make your eventual glory and joy that much greater. And that's the ultimate defeat of evil in your life. The ultimate defeat. So now you can understand why Thomas did not need to touch Yeshua's wounds. Yeshua was saying to Thomas, and Yeshua was saying to you and to me, look at my wounds and realize if you rest in me, the things you thought were ruining your life are the very things that are saving your life. Just as my wounds, which you thought were ruining my life, were actually the means of my greatest triumph. So when Thomas says, I want to see his wounds because the wounds are evidence that you're alive, Yeshua says, no, no. The wounds are actually evidence of something much more than I'm alive. These wounds are evidence that I love you. Yeshua is not saying, look at me, look at me, look what I can do. I can rise from the dead. No, he's saying, look at these, look at these, look at how much I love you. Look at what I was willing to do for you. And at that point, it broke through to Thomas. He no longer needed to physically touch the wounds to believe. He in essence says, you have done this for me. You've done all of this for me, my Lord and my God. And, he, and uh, he's given this proof here. From, rise, from, rise, uh, from uh, rising from the dead. Hallelujah. So that's number three. So number one is look at the evidence. Listen to the evidence. Number two, realize that he's seeking you. Number three, realize, understand the meaning of glorified wounds. 
Number four, you've got to repent. Because if Yeshua is really raised from the dead, as our Messiah, as the Son of God, in fulfillment of all the biblical prophecies, that means what? That means he's the Lord. He is Lord. You know, Paul went to Athens, preached on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, which Areopagus in Greek means the hill of Ares, the Greek god of war, whose Latin name was Mars, therefore Mars Hill. And on the Areopagus, uh, it was his council of all the leading Greek philosophers of the day. And Paul begins to preach to them. He preached about the one true God, uh, the creator of heaven and earth. And they loved it. Uh, for a good while, they really enjoyed it. Why? Because they said, you know, Paul, we're all searching for God. All the different religions are searching. And every religion tells us something about God uh, or about the gods. Uh, gives us clues to how best to live our lives. So, so this is wonderful, all this new stuff you're telling us. But then all of a sudden, Paul says this. Look at Acts 17, verse 30. In the past, God overlooked the times of ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he's going to judge the world with justice for the man he's appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone. How? By raising him from the dead. Hallelujah. And at this point, the lecture was over. The philosophers stopped Paul from talking. They scoffed at him. They got up. They left. The lecture was over. Uh, and and the, here's the reason why. Because they realized that if what Paul was saying was true, it had personal implications for them. And they got, all of a sudden, very uncomfortable. Because they realized that Paul was saying, the search is over. The search is over. The search was wonderful. Times of ignorance. God was patient. Everybody's looking. Everybody's seeking and, and grasping and trying to find God. But if Yeshua is who he says he is, the Lord God Almighty, in the flesh, and then proves it by rising from the dead, then the search is over. He's here. It is time for a decision. And the philosophers knew that the resurrection meant that, that Messianic Yeshua faith was claiming something for its founder that no other religion had ever come close to even trying to claim. Now, why does the resurrection make Messianic Yeshua faith unique? Don't other religions have story of, of heroes being, being resurrected? Uh, doesn't the Bible itself have others who, who are resurrected, right? No, didn't Elisha raise the, the widow's son, Elisha? Didn't, didn't Lazarus raise from the dead? So why would Yeshua's resurrection make him so unique? The answer is this. No one was ever raised like Yeshua. Look at Lazarus. They had to roll the stone away for him, for, for him so he could get out of the cave. They had to untangle and remove his grave clothes so he could see and talk and move. But Yeshua's grave clothes are just lying there in the tomb, completely intact and wrapped and folded because his body just passed through the clothes. And when he appeared to his disciples in the upper room, he passed right through locked doors. He walked right through the wall. And the reason the stone was rolled away from the tomb on, on Sunday morning at the Feast of First Fruits was not so that Yeshua could get out. Did you think that was what it was for? I bet you did. 
That's not why the stone was rolled away. The stone was rolled away so that we could get in. So not for that he could get out. <laughs> and so Mary, Miriam and the disciples could get in and see the empty tomb. Yeshua did not need the stone to be rolled away for him to get out. He was not raised like anybody else. Everyone else who was ever raised, you know, eventually died again. Death temporarily lost its grip on Lazarus. But Lazarus eventually died again. But Yeshua broke the hands and the teeth of death, so to speak. He broke the power of death. He destroyed death. The death of death. That's what the resurrection of Yeshua accomplished. And so now Yeshua has an eternal glorified body. Uh, he can pass right through walls. He now lives in a whole new realm. A realm beyond decay. A realm beyond time and space and death. Amen. Yeshua is not like the founder of any other religion. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the Son of God, the Lord God incarnate in the flesh. He is broken through death. And that's why John, upon seeing this vision of Yeshua, John writes this in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. John says, I saw him and I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Unlike Lazarus, Yeshua was not just resuscitated. He didn't rise just to die again. He died and he rose once for all, triumphant over the grave, never to die again. He broke the bands of death. He said, I'm the living one. I hold the keys to death and to Hades. Now, what does this mean for the philosophers on Mars Hill? What does it mean for you and for me? It means the search is over. Uh, it means the day of repentance is here. Because every other religion and every other philosophy is pointing to something and saying, this is the way to life. But Yeshua says, I am the life. I am not just another teacher pointing to clues on your search for life. I am the life to which all the clues point. You know, in John 11, Martha comes up to Yeshua and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother Lazarus wouldn't have died. And now, she, in essence, she says, we're going to have to wait to see him again at the last day at the resurrection. But what does Yeshua say in John eleven twenty five, Yeshua says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Hallelujah. Amen. Yeshua says, I am the resurrection. Wherever I am, there's resurrection. I am not a teacher pointing to the resurrection. I'm the resurrection to which all the teachers point. And therefore, don't keep searching. Rather, repent. This is the reason why the resurrection is so in your face. This is the reason why even today it's such an outrage. You know, the average person today says, everybody's got their own religion. Everybody's searching for God in their own way. Everyone's trying. Everyone's got part of the truth. You know, who knows what the truth is? 
I'm sorry, that is just a cop-out. Because as long as we're all just searching, and who knows what's right, everybody has their own religion, their own philosophy, if that's true, then I can say we am a spiritual seeker, but then I can live any way I want. Because who knows what's really true? But if Yeshua says, I'm not the pointer to the truth, I am the truth. I'm not the pointer to life. I am the life. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. I've destroyed death. And the only way you're ever going to get past death is through me. Well, that means the search is over. And the day of decision is now. That's why Paul says God overlooked those times of ignorance in the past. But now he's calling all men everywhere to repent. Yeshua says, come to me. Come to him. Bow down. Make him Lord of your life. And the gospel writers are saying, I know this is an outrageous claim. They admit this, that Yeshua rose from the dead. I know, yes, we live in a pluralistic society, which everybody's got their own religion. We know, and we know no other religion, no other philosophy makes a claim like this. We know that our claim that this man, Yeshua, is trust in him or die forever. We know this is an outrageous claim. But what can we do? We saw him. We saw him risen from the dead. Wounds and all. We saw him with our eyes. We heard him with our ears. We felt him with our hands. We're eyewitnesses. And it transformed the disciples' lives. And it changed the whole world. They saw the living one. The one with the keys to death and Hades. He is the Lord. And therefore he's calling you today to trust in him. And to repent. And that brings us to our last point, number five. So uh, number five is drop your conditions. What do I mean? Uh, probably the reason why Thomas didn't touch his wounds is because he realized at that moment when he had previously said, you know, I won't believe unless, he, he's saying, I'm putting conditions on my belief. I won't believe unless, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll obey if. Now most people who start to move toward Yeshua uh, at first come with conditions, don't we? You want something in return. Uh, or you want to limit your commitment. You want to make a deal with God. You've got conditions. You often have negative conditions where you say, I'll believe in you, Yeshua, but only if I don't have to give up this, this, and this, and this. I remember one person came to me years ago, said, David, if I become a believer, does that mean I have to forgive my sister and start talking to her? <laughs> Let me think about this choice here. Uh, eternal life forever and reconciling with your sister or eternal separation from, from God and then keeping a grudge against my sister. Not really a hard choice. <laughs> and we can laugh, but the truth, is, the truth is most of us come toward Yeshua. When we first come, we come with conditions. We say, yes, eternal life, that sounds nice, but I don't want to hurt my career, or I don't want to have to give up this immoral relationship or, or this immoral practice. Yeshua says to you today, drop your conditions. Because your conditions are really saying, I'll love you if. But Yeshua didn't do that, did he? He loved you unconditionally. Even when you hated him and were his enemy. 
Yeshua did not look down from the cross and say, let me find some more worthy people to die for. No. The Bible says, while we were yet his enemies, he died for us. He loves you unconditionally. He looks into your life, into your heart. He sees everything. He sees your sin and your rebellion and your darkness. He sees it all. And yet, he still dies for you. He still extends his invitation to you today to follow him. There was a movie way back in 1991 called The Fisher King. Star Jeff Bridges and Robin Williams and Amanda Plummer. Amanda Plummer played this klutzy young woman, very clumsy, socially awkward, had no friends, uh, hates herself. Robin Williams is this homeless guy who sees her, kind of secretly watches her, and falls in love with her. Jeff Bridges comes along and cleans him up, uh, makes him respectable. So Robin Williams goes out on a date uh, with her. And they have a wonderful time. But as soon as the date is over, she says to him, I never want to see you again. Because if you get to know me, you won't like me. I had a wonderful time, but it's too painful to let this relationship develop. Because once you get to really know me, you will not like me at all. So let's call it off now. And we'll put this in the overhead. This is what Robin Williams says back to her. He says, you don't understand. I've seen you. I know everything about you. I know you're clumsy. I know you have no friends. I know you're socially awkward. I know you don't like yourself. But I still love you. I've seen it all, and I still love you. And I will never leave you. And Amanda Plummer, she touches him like, are you real? (laughs) But you see, there already really is someone like that. Who is really real. Who looked into your life and unconditionally loved you, warts and all. Now Yeshua, who has unconditionally loved you, asks you today to unconditionally love him in return. To give yourself to him. So number one, listen to the eyewitnesses. Number two, realize he is seeking you. Number three, understand the meaning of glorified wounds. Number four, repent because he's Lord. And number five, drop your conditions. Stop doubting and believe. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. Let the music team to come on up, please. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Lord, we just pray. We come to you before you today. We thank you for Passover. We thank you for the Feast of First Fruits, for for the, the day you rose from the dead, the resurrection. That's the first fruits of those who rise from the dead. We thank you, Lord Yeshua, that you died for our sins on the cross. And you sealed and affected our salvation three days later by your resurrection. Uh, the God and the Father vindicated all your claims by raising you from the dead. We know, Lord, that without the resurrection, we're still in our sins. Without the resurrection, we're the most pitiful people of all. But the resurrection is real. And you've been raised, just as you said. You did fulfill the feast, the appointed times of first fruits, by being the first fruit of those who rise from the dead, thereby guaranteeing our resurrection. Hallelujah. (laughs) Thank you, Lord Yeshua, for being the hound of heaven who pursues us. Even when we're sinners, even when we're your enemies, you love us and you pursued us and you gave yourself for us. 
You pursued us long before we even pursued you. Thank you, Lord Yeshua, for your wounds, your glorified wounds, which remain as a badge of love for us, demonstrating your love for us. That's the Lord, in light of all that you've done for us, we do now two things for you. Number one, Lord, we repent. We turn from our sin. We turn from ourself. We turn back to you. We repent, we renounce our sin, and we ask you to forgive us for the blood of Yeshua, by your shed blood on the cross, Yeshua. And number two, we drop our conditions. And we embrace you as Lord, uh, giving all of our life wholly to you, Lord. Uh, Body, soul, mind, and spirit. You loved us without condition. And Lord, now we commit our lives to you today, unconditionally. And we pray this all, Hashem Yeshua, in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.